Well, let's start with motivation. It is a few days before Christmas, which in the Western world, um, and depending on the country, it takes over popular culture and people's minds. For me, there's something about um, this time of year, this, um, I don't know, I'm quite conditioned to um, appreciate what this means in terms of the longing, the longing, the longing that human beings have to be free of suffering. So it's a longing, you know, a longing for the light the songs are all about, a longing to be saved. And what Buddha Shakyamuni did that was so unique among teachers was that he went to the very root of the problem. He went to the very root of the very thing that we're trying to be freed from, our suffering. He saw the most subtle ways that it exists. He saw why and how it happens. He saw and described that it is actually possible to change it. He realized how. And then, out of that experience, he actually taught it. So that mm, anyone who had the karma, the right conditions in order to hear those teachings, had an opportunity to follow the very same path that he did to be free of that thing that we are so longing for, especially this time of year, to be free from our suffering. And this is true for every single being. Every, every single form of being, we have that longing to be, longing for something. Longing to have happiness and that longing, longing to be free of the suffering, the difficulties, even the most subtle of our existence. And so how amazing that we have had the fortune, those of us in this room and maybe watching this video or watching this talk, have had the fortune to be able to meet the teaching that opens the door that can actually answer the call of that longing to be free of our suffering and to have happiness. So while we have this chance, very brief though it may be, while we're right now in our human form, with our human intelligence, our human body, we have all the conditions to explore what it was that the Buddha taught and an interest in it, for goodness sake. How rare is that? So for the sake of exploring this for ourselves, 
and because we share this longing with every being in order to mm, liberate them as well. Set a motivation to use this time tonight to help nourish the seeds that will grow into our own complete awakening. Nourish the seeds that help us follow in the Buddha's footsteps all the way to complete awakening. So that we can fulfill that longing for the light, that longing to be free for ourselves and for all others. seems kind of appropriate that we're doing far-reaching wisdom right around Christmas time for some reason. I don't know that thing about longing, our longing to be free is so, it's so universal. We don't know what we want to be free from, really. We know we don't want to suffer. We don't like the pain. Um, and so the Wisdom is the way out. The wisdom, or cultivating our wisdom is the way out. So it's kind of a lovely night, lovely time to be doing a, a sharing. I'm going to say a sharing, not a teaching, on uh, far-reaching wisdom. So we've been talking about, um, well, we've been talking about the whole graduated path, <laughs> gradual path to enlightenment. And the last few weeks we've been talking about um, Bodhicitta, and last week when Tarpa gave a um, really lovely description of the um, five, first five of the six far-reaching practices, um, or far-reaching attitudes, the paramitas. The literal translation of paramita is far-reaching attitude, far-reaching. Far-reaching has the connotation of going beyond so that as we aim to go beyond cyclic existence to the safe shore of Buddhahood, we do that by eliminating the obscurations, the afflictive obscurations and the obscurations to omniscience. It takes wisdom to do that. His Holiness says to go beyond thus connotes the goal, full enlightenment, as well as the method for going beyond samsara. So these far-reaching attitudes, Vedapal Tarpa really stressed this last week, they are states of mind. They are not necessarily actions. They may motivate and um, shape our behavior. We may have to put them into practice, but they're really, really states of mind. So the basic six far-reaching attitudes are generosity, ethical conduct, fortitude or patience. Different translations, same idea. Um, joyous effort or joyful perseverance or enthusiastic perseverance. There's many translations for that joyous effort one. Concentration, or Alex Burson calls it mental constancy. Uh, and wisdom. So the first five can't go beyond anything without this sixth one, without being conjoined with or infused with wisdom. So it's really, really an important topic. 
I use a lot of, let me just tell you who I, I relied on. Very reliable sources. I relied on Venerable Teaching Children. I relied on Geshe Champa Tekchuk. I relied on uh, Lama Tsongkhapa, Jay Rinpoche. I relied on Alex Burzin. I relied on uh, Pabaka Rinpoche. Uh, who else was I looking at? A lot of sources. So very reliable sources. The vehicle, however, the speaker of those sources may have errors. <laughs> so that's my um, disclaimer tonight, is that I am simply sharing. I am not a person that can um, speak authoritatively on the topic of emptiness, although I have received teachings, because Venerable Egyptian Children has been, teaches it continually. Why? Because this teaching on wisdom is the key to getting us out of samsara. But um, please investigate anything that I say, and I will let you know right now all errors are my own. <laughs> so check up on me. So having said that, um, Alex Burzin has some interesting ways of looking at it that I thought might be helpful. Because I know that there, I've had some conversations with people here in this room that coming up on this topic of wisdom is a little intimidating or a little uncomfortable. And I've had that also. I've also had that. Um, and in fact, I ended up giving this talk because we all had to sign up on the topics and nobody signed up for this one. And I thought, it's time for you <laughs> to do this. So um, my goal is to try to find um, a way to help us together as a community to come to a little bit more comfort with how we begin to study it or how we begin to explore it so that it's a little more friendly or a little more comfortable. Because it's not a comfortable topic, let's just face it. But um, if it were comfortable, we'd have done it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but we can get more familiar with it. So he's got an interesting way of talking about things. He, he translates this particular kind of wisdom as discriminating awareness. So it's, it's, it is discriminating what's helpful, what's harmful. That's a kind of wisdom. What's appropriate, what's not appropriate. And then it's also applied to discriminating between the way things exist and the way things don't exist. In fact, the way it's impossible for things to exist. That's what we are trying to look at through this practice. Nagarjuna says, the wisdom is the root of all good qualities in this and future lives. Wisdom, this is a quote, the wisdom is the root of all good qualities seen and not seen. To achieve both of these, embrace wisdom. The great source for what you seek and for liberation is knowledge. So esteeming it from the start, adhere to wisdom, the great mother. Mother of what? All Buddhas. Because realizing emptiness, realizing, using that wisdom that understands the nature of reality is how Buddhas are born. It's the only way. It's the only way. There's different analogies for why this is so important. Lama Sankapa talks about this one. I think it's quite interesting. He correlates um, or kind of compares how... Um, Wisdom is to the five other far-reaching practices, like the mental consciousness is to our other our sense consciousnesses. 
Here's the quote. Among the various faculties, well, actually, Arya Sura is the quote, and Lama Tsongkhapa expands on it. Among the various faculties of faith and so on, wisdom is chief, as the mind is to the sensory faculties. With wisdom as Lord, you know what is a fault and what is merit, so you are skilled in the method of eliminating afflictions. So what this boils down to is our five senses take in things. You know, we can smell the chocolate chip cookies, we can taste the lemonade, we can feel the, you know, the warmth of the flannel sheets, all of that stuff. But it's the mental consciousness, that, but they're like dumb animals, right? They can only take in the data. It's the mental consciousness that has the discernment to, un, to un, know how to interrelate, how to discriminate, how to discern what's to be adopted and what's to be abandoned, you know, in relation to the sense data that comes in. So in the same way, wisdom makes our practices of the other far-reaching attitudes wise. For example, with respect for what to give, if they were doing practicing generosity. So generosity is a wonderful mental state, but it's not just the absence of miserliness. No, there is a wisdom involved in what to give, to whom to give, the right timing to give, and then how to understand the whole action of giving. That comes from wisdom. So generosity alone, actually generosity without wisdom, um, it's great to do, but it doesn't take us very far along the path. If we are giving, for example, in that practice of giving, if we're giving with without that awareness of wisdom, I mean, all virtuous actions result in a pleasurable feeling. Every act of virtue, every pleasant feeling we have is a result of past virtue. Every virtuous action we have, we do, results in a feeling of happiness or pleasure, given. But we do those actions without wisdom or without dedicating it or whatever, it creates some happiness or some pleasure in this life or in our samsaric life. That's it. But if we're bringing wisdom to it, then we're also starting to begin to have an understanding of dedicating. Dedicating that action for liberation, or if we're on the bodhisattva path, dedicating that action for full awakening. And then, part of, part of what wisdom is doing then is helping us transform that act of giving into something that will take us all the way to Buddhahood. So this is very powerful. Very powerful. So, But the six far-reaching practices, so the bodhisattva practices, and motivated by bodhicitta, then purified with meditation on emptiness. These practices take us beyond cyclic existence. So to do this, we have to accumulate all the appropriate causes and conditions that will bring full enlightenment. So these are all collected in our two collections. right? The collections of merit and the collection of wisdom. It takes the whole range of six far-reaching practices to bring about these two collections. So 
Merit is the method aspect of the path. The collection of wisdom is the wisdom aspect of the path. And when completed, these two collections lead to what is called the, the form body from the merit and the um, truth body of the Buddha. So that's what's transformed into the Buddha itself. That's what becomes a Buddha. Um, we say this verse every day. It's, it's from 60 stanzas by Nagarjuna. He summarizes the whole thing. Due to this virtue, may all beings complete the collections of merit and wisdom. May they attain the two Buddha bodies resulting from merit and wisdom. Where do we say that? Lunch. Lunch. Every single day. Due to this virtue, may all beings complete the collections of merit. May they attain the two Buddha bodies resulting from merit and wisdom. So, we're praying for them. It's good to really think about what they are. Again, um, Alex Berzin has a really interesting way of thinking about them that I think is helpful. So he calls these collections of merit and wisdom networks. It's not just an amassing thing. He calls them networks because they have, um, they all they interrelate and there's many parts to it. And he says, you know, the two networks, we already have the network of merit and wisdom. We already have to some extent just by the basis of having our Buddha nature. It's not like we're starting from absolute zero. But we need to... Um, expand these networks, develop them, strengthen them. And he says it grows, too. Each network grows. It's not like a collection of stamps. I like that. <laughs> it's not like the collection of merit. It's not like a collection of stamps that just sits there. You keep sticking in one, and that's all you get. No. As we accumulate this collection of merit, positive energy, positive potential, this virtue, it grows as does our collection of wisdom. And then this is where the dedication thing comes in. As we dedicate, then that collection of merit or wisdom goes toward the very things that we are aspiring for with our intentional dedication. So these two networks then are divided up in two different ways. But basically this network, this interconnection of um, virtuous actions and the energy, the positive energy that grows from that is the, is the actual um, substantial cause in the sutra system for the form body of the Buddha. Or the form corpus. Like body, it's not like a body like this. It's like the collection of that creates the Buddha form. Right? The wisdom collection or the wisdom network is the substantial cause that is transformed into the enlightened mind of the Buddha and all the aspects of it. It's emptiness too, the Dharmakaya. And the analogy he uses is really cool. It's like, he said it'd be like, you have dough for making bread. Our Donnie bread maker here. 
So dough is the substantial cause or the substance that turns into the bread. So by the time you have the bread, the dough is no longer there. But it's the dough that makes it become the bread when it's cooked, right? So these build these networks, our enlightenment building networks is what he calls them. So this network of our wisdom and this network of our um, virtue or our merit, this positive force, is like the dough. And out of that dough, through our practice, this transforms into the enlightening forms of the Buddha's form body and the Buddha's mind. And these sound like two different things in the way we describe them. But you can't have one without the other. It's not like in our bodhisattva practice we can blow off wisdom and just do generosity, ethics, patience, joyous effort, concentration, and then just come up with a bunch of Buddha bodies and forget the Buddha mind part. We can't do that. They are absolutely integrated and feed and support each other as we practice, even from the very beginning. So, you know, they talk about the analogy of the two wings of the bird that are needed to fly, right? This is what they're talking about. You've got to have the method, you've got to have the wisdom, you have to have the two things coming together in order to create, to transform ourselves into the Buddha that we aspire to become. So there's two ways to classify which is which. So of these six far-reaching practices, what's merit, what's wisdom? Um, there's two different ways of looking at it. And this, I think, is helpful because you hear, I have heard it both ways. Sometimes it's like, well, which is it? Which I've finally learned to stop asking. There's just different ways of presenting it from time to time. So in general, Mahayana, um, merit arises from generosity ethical conduct, and then of patience or fortitude, there's three kinds. There's patience in the face of, um, in confront of harm, like we don't retaliate. There's the patience um, with our own suffering and difficulties. And then there's the patience to practice the Dharma. So with these first two kinds of patience fall under that method side in the general Mahayana presentation. Then, under the wisdom side, from the, in the general Mahayana presentation, there's chiefly the uh, far-reaching practice of wisdom, then the far-reaching practice of concentration with emptiness as its object, and then this third kind of patience, patience to practice the Dharma, falls on the collection of wisdom side. And then joyous effort is needed for both. So it's from both sides of it. So that's one way we hear it often in the teachings. Lama Sankapa looks at the same set of six from the perspective of the two truths, the conventional truth and ultimate truth. So in that case, it divides very neatly that the conventional truths are generosity, ethics, joyous effort, concentration. Generosity, ethics, Patience, joyous effort, concentration. <laughs> and then wisdom is the side of the ultimate truth. So you hear it both both ways. And I think, it, you know, there's different ways of, those two different ways of thinking about it bring different 
approaches or different things to mind, but just it's just like don't be confused. So boiling it down, what is far-reaching wisdom? Here's His Holiness's kind of technical definition. Far-reaching wisdom is an Arya Bodhisattva's direct perceiver of emptiness, which is supported by the method side of the path, in particular the bodhicitta motivation. Right? So having just studied the grounds and paths, we know that an Arya Bodhisattva is a Bodhisattva that's on the path of seeing or above. They're direct perceiver of emptiness. So in meditative equipoise, they directly perceive emptiness that is informed by their practice of bodhicitta or their by their actual bodhicitta in their minds. It's not present at the moment that they're in meditative equipoise. We know that too but it informs that mind. And it's important because um, those who, there are, you know, the, the um, hearers and solitary realizers also have the direct perception of emptiness at a certain point in their path. But it's not informed by bodhicitta. Therefore, the wisdom they have is not the far-reaching wisdom. Right? It doesn't have that quality of bodhicitta. It doesn't have that motivation of wishing to benefit every single living being, and it doesn't have the mind that has the spontaneous um, wish to do so. So there's three types of far-reaching wisdom. The wisdom that knows the ultimate. So that's the one that's cognizing selflessness, either directly or, in this case, by a concept, which contra- which contradicts a little bit the thing I just said. But um, The second kind is the wisdom that knows the conventional. And here, in, um, it's, called, it's not just knowing... Um, you know, we learned that there's two. Early on, we learned there's two kinds of wisdom. One is one is the wisdom that knows the, uh, understands karma, understands the what to practice and what to abandon in terms of um, creating causes for future rebirths and so forth. Um, this is more expansive than that. It's the wisdom that knows the conventional, which includes the five topics: knowledge, logic, grammar, poetry, and so on, and. In a further note, Venerable says that it's like it's not just the five fields of knowledge. It's like this is the wisdom that covers this thing where bodhisattvas learn whatever is useful to benefit sentient beings. So the wisdom that is trying to ascertain how to build this building <laughs> for the sake of sentient beings, I think, falls under this. And the third kind is the wisdom of knowing how to work for the benefit of sentient beings. So it's a skillful means aspect. But this first type of wisdom, the wisdom realizing emptiness, is emphasized because it's the key to enlightenment. It's totally the key. So even if we generate the determination to be free, even if we generate bodhicitta, without this wisdom, realizing emptiness, we will not attain Buddhahood. So, I suppose the next question might be, how does this work then in terms of the paramitas or in terms of the far-reaching practices? What does this mean, this wisdom thing? 
bodhisattvas who um, like take giving again as the example, if you know, if we practice giving and we should practice giving, and it's it creates the causes for us to be able to do far-reaching giving someday. But when we practice giving, we do it with a mind that thinks I, the giver, am inherently existent and real. The recipient is. The thing I'm giving is inherently existent and real. Our motivation might be quite mixed, even though you know we want to have a pure motivation, but to, to be able to give without any wish that the person like the gift or be appreciative, or and that's very, very hard for us to do. Um, So when uh, a bodhisattva is giving it with their wisdom, their act of generosity conjoined with their wisdom, then they're reflecting on the ultimate nature of the giver, of the gift, of the recipient, of the action of giving. They're recognizing that every one of these things is empty of inherent existence and actually dependent on each other and then through this kind of reflection and thinking, then the attachment that arises in terms of giving, you know, attachment for the object, attachment for the praise and appreciation that will come from that, or the anger that could arise if the person isn't happy, all of that is purified through the wisdom of that giving. And so this wisdom, far-reaching generosity, then based on bodhicitta, assisted by wisdom, becomes both method and wisdom part of the path. So we can imagine how much merit we generate with that kind of mind. Huge positive force. And then we're purifying, purifying, purifying as we practice. Mm. Here in my notes, this must have been where I kind of went to it because I it was like, Oh, this is the it's too hard section. <laughs> Let's talk about it's too hard. Because <laughs> it is. It's not an easy thing to wrap our minds around. Even this. I mean, we haven't even talked about what that emptiness is yet. Um, Venerable had a nice thing to say. She said, the subject of emptiness is difficult to understand. And to have a full understanding takes time. It takes dedicated study. It takes dedicated meditation. And so it's not meant to, um, we're not expected to understand and accept any of this instantly. It would be unskillful. (laughs) It wouldn't be productive or beneficial. I mean, there is a point, I don't remember who I read, I didn't put it in the notes, but where somebody said, you know, it's okay if because you trust your teacher so much, or you trust the Buddha so much, they say things are empty of inherent existence. That's nice. You have faith in that. That's very good. But until we actually have the reason and have thought through the reasonings and have an experience of it, I mean, so even when we get the words right, but have some kind of inner experience, even not a realization of emptiness, but some kind of inner experience, then it actually begins to cultivate our own wisdom. And then once we start to do our own thinking about it, 
we um, begin to have a foundation or develop a foundation that's developing conviction in this teaching. So we're not even expected or supposed to just take it on, quote, faith. We're not supposed to. So it's helpful to look at the benefits. If we're going to do something hard, something complicated, um, we should look at the benefits. So there's one nice quote about the fault. Well, there's many nice quotes, but this one I liked. This is from the verse summary of the perfection of wisdom in 8,000 lines. How could billions of blind people without a guide who do not know the way enter a city? Right? This image. Billions of blind people. Billions. There's no guide dog. There's no guide person. They don't know the way that they're going. How could these people enter the city? Any city. <laughs> That's how we are. <laughs> Billions of blind people without a guide. So once these five perfections lack wisdom, they are blind. Equally blind. As they lack a guide, they cannot reach enlightenment. So, if that's our goal, if I want to wake up, then I need wisdom to go with these perfections practices. That's number one. Um, Kinsu Jampatekchak says that um, that there's a sutra. He doesn't say which one. That really talks about the merit of of spending the time of putting our minds to wisdom. It said, somebody Bodhisattvas may diligently practice just the first five of the six perfections, giving, ethical conduct, fortitude, joyous effort, and meditative stability for hundreds and thousands of eons. That's a Bodhisattva. But the merit of even an ordinary practitioner, that is us, me, <laughs> I won't speak for you, who listens to the topic of emptiness, reflects and meditates on its meaning, and writes it out or explains it to others, even with some hesitation or indecision, is far greater than that. That is saying a lot. A bodhisattva may practice diligently the other five perfections for hundreds and thousands of eons, but an ordinary practitioner putting their mind to the study of emptiness creates more merit than that. That's, I find it quite a motivator. Because the reward is, I mean, it's a nice comparison for what the, what the payoff is. Huh? This is, it comes from uh, Insight into Emptiness. It's from Kensar John Patekto. He did not cite what sutra it was, but he did say it came from a sutra. So then he says, therefore, imagine the merit if we listen to teachings on emptiness without any doubt. Or, you know, just thinking, I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm open to it. Or think of the merit accumulated if we actually had an accurate and firm conviction based on some reasoning. You know, that would be quite amazing. And then finally, meditating on selflessness and emptiness purifies a tremendous amount of destructive karma. 
purifies a hum- huge amount of destructive karma. So this is the sutra, the Tathagata's Treasury Sutra says, if one who has done all of the ten destructive actions engages in the meaning of selflessness or, you know, studies wisdom, has faith in and admiration for the primordial purity of all phenomena, that means has faith and admiration for the empty nature of all phenomena, he or she will not be born in the unfortunate realms. One who's done all the ten destructive actions, <laughs> engages in and really studies and, and has faith and admiration for this, they will not be born in unfortunate realms. That's a lot of purification. So the bottom line, the reason we do this, is that we want ourselves to be free of true dukkha and true origins, right? The causes of our suffering are our karma and afflictions that cause our unsatisfactory experiences, right? Our karmas create the causes for our unfortunate rebirths, our actions inspired by our afflictions, These actions are motivated by our afflictions, the chief of which is our ignorance grasping true existence. So, to stop the cycle, (laughs) that's the benefit. To stop the cycle. So we've, we know this, we've heard this before. The Tibetan word for ignorance literally means not knowing, unknowing. It's the mind that doesn't know or is not aware of the true nature. So it's not just unaware, but actually grasps things in exactly the opposite way that they exist. So again, our practices of the other five, bodhicitta, love, compassion, generosity, and so forth, they help, but they don't confront it directly. By themselves, they don't understand that phenomena exist completely opposite to the way ignorance believes them to exist. Only wisdom does that. Only wisdom. So it's interesting thing to think about that wisdom and ignorance realize, I mean, they have the same object as their focus. I mean, well, we could get to my rice cracker. Wisdom and ignorance would take the same object as their focus. And the difference is that ignorance grasps is truly existence, existing from its own side. Wisdom, realizing emptiness, realizes the absence of that true existence and knows that the object doesn't exist from its own side at all. So the objects are the same. Their understanding is completely different. Completely different. <laughs> and history tech charts this too. He said it's very profound, this this wisdom. And its object, the emptiness of inherent existence, is not easy to realize. For this reason, the Buddha did not teach emptiness immediately. <laughs> It was so profound and difficult he wondered if anyone would be able to find he, he would be able to find anybody capable of understanding it. That's how profound the teaching is. And Kensu Chuck says, fortunately, he was he did. Fortunately for us, he was persuaded to teach. 
And it is said that everything the Buddha taught leads to this. And if we look at the graduated path, that's really how it's laid out. You know, it leads our minds to this realization. So then how do things really exist? Venerable children, this is this is the problem. Venerable children has in open heart, clear mind a really beautiful chapter on wisdom where she uses the example of a cracker. In my mind, it was a graham cracker. That's interesting enough. We don't have any. (laughs) Wishful, I know. But it's a nice size. You know, the rice cracker somehow didn't do it. But the rice cake will do it. So we'll take the rice cake as our example. I mean, it's clearly a rice cake, right? It's... We start with analyzing how do things appear to us. Because we don't even ever notice how things appear to us. They just appear. But how does it appear? It appears to be completely independent, for example. It appears to be separate from everything. It is just sitting here oddly in this bowl. Nobody knows why it's sitting in this bowl, but nobody for second thought it was anything other than a rice cake. It's completely rice cake. It's radiating rice cake-ness. It's its nature to be a rice cake. (laughs) It is a unified thing, this rice cake. It's a whole monolithic entity. And it's unchanging. Hasn't changed since I put it here. It's a rice cake. Nobody doubts it. Nobody questions it. What's the problem? Right? It's just a rice cake. So it's vividly a rice cake. It's part of its vividness. I mean, that's the way things just appear, like they're out there, separate, appearing, with no connection to anything. That cut-off phrase that Jeffrey was talking about, even though from its different school, it's been really in my mind, things are cut off separate from me, outside. And that's exactly how things appear to us. But the idea is if this rice cake appeared, I mean existed, in the way that it appears, then it would become more vivid the more we analyzed it. Right? Why not? It would become more vividly itself. We'd be able to see what is the thing that is the rice cake. But, we'll see if we can. There, it's important to note, the right cracker appears to us to exist independent of any causes and conditions, independent of any parts or aspects or independence of our minds. We don't think of any of those things. So, we're searching for the thing that is the rice cake. Where's the rice cake? (laughs) Is it in this one? Is it this one? Is it still a rice cake? It's still a rice cake. Do we have two rice cakes or is it one rice cake? The bigger one's the rice cake. Yeah, yeah, the bigger one's the rice cake. Okay, okay. So we don't have two rice cakes. That's a piece of the rice cake and the other one's the rice cake. This is the rice cake, okay. (laughs) 
So we should be able to find the rice cake in this piece. Yeah, it's in there. It's in this piece. Okay, let's try it. Where's the rice cake? Uh, it's in the big one. <laughs> let's see. I think that would be... But what do I have here? Okay. Where's the rice cake? Is it in there anywhere? What can we find? Anything that is? Do we have anything here that's a rice cake? <laughs> I mean, it could be. If the rice cake is in every piece of this, then this is like rice cake manufacturing. Cheap, cheap, cheap. Easy to do. You could spend however much was it two fifty for a thing of rice cake? You spend two fifty for this. This is about as many pieces as there are rice cakes in a thing, right? This solid independent thing is now what? A pile of crumbs. None of which is a rice cake. Right? Where did it go? And where is it? This rice cake that seemed to exist so vividly. Is it in any of these parts? You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was there. Parts is parts. Parts is parts. So if it's not in its parts, then maybe it's somewhere else in the room. No, this rice cake is in that pack. <laughs> any place else it is in the room? No. No, no. So, you know, I mean, this is really simple. This is not even going into depth into all the things that aren't the right cake. But it's so kind of obvious that we just start taking things apart. And that thing that was so vividly clear disappears as we, and permanent, disappears when we start to analyze it. However, it's not to say the rice cake doesn't exist. It does. It must. Otherwise, we couldn't put our little butter on it and eat it. So how does it exist? Dependently. Not in that inherent, solid, monolithic, out there, unchanging, independent way that it appears to us and that we grasp at it. But it does exist dependently. So what is it depending on? It's depending on its causes and conditions. Oh, it's on the wrapper. It's dependent on the Lundberg brothers who grow rice in California. It's dependent on the workers who harvest this rice. It's dependent on the fact that there is a grain of rice here. It's dependent on who made up rice cakes anyway. It's somebody invented them. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't even know how they're stuck together. It's invented on some. It's it's dependent on some mold. <laughs> it's some processing factory. Somebody had to build a rice cake factory. I mean, there's so many causes and substantial causes. This pile of rice. You know, which came from this plant, and who knows, the plant was maybe originated in Asia zillions of years ago. 
We don't see any of that. But that's how the how the rice cake exists. It also exists on its parts. Not just the two halves, but the front, the back, the top, the bottom, the smell, the texture, the sound of the crack. And all the grains of rice. All the grains of rice that are easy to see the parts here. Completely dependent. The earthworms are the car that causes. I don't know if it's part of the parts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then it's dependent on the mind, consciousness, that conceives it. Consciousness that sees that collection of parts and identifies it as a rice cake. It could be a frisbee. It could be, what, for the turkeys? Something for the worms. But we collectively have agreed that this is called a rice cake. And so it's um, on this basis of um, searching for something that appears to exist from its own side that we begin to analyze again, 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 again what actually is here. Every single phenomena, every single thing that exists, including people, are dependent, exists or arise dependently. And no sentient being, to no sentient being's consciousness do they appear that way, except those in meditative equipoison enters. Every consciousness, every perception we have is mistaken with respect to this. It's amazing that we would even consider an alternative. And yet, through analysis, we can begin to see that if things can't exist, it's impossible for things to exist in the way that they appear. If they appeared, I mean, if they appear with this kind of independence, but things come from somewhere. Right off the bat, simple level, they cannot be independent in the way that they appear. They come from something. We know that things are dependent on causes and conditions, but they don't appear that way. Right off the bat, we know that it cannot be unchanging in the way that it appears. It cannot be. It's not going to suddenly get soggy. That happens changing moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. And what is even harder to see is that it is not at all separate from our conception. Completely dependent on our conception of it. So there's so many wonderful and little things that we can do. Like Venerable Children, when we were on retreat at um, Tonali on, um, in 2000, we were doing meditation on Manjushri, so we were definitely looking at emptiness. And she would just say, just look at, the, look at a tree and ask, what is there? What is a tree about this tree? Where's the rice cake about this rice cake? How can a pile of things that aren't really a rice cake be a rice cake? 
The collection can't be it. What about this pile of bark and leaves and limbs? What about that as a tree? It's an easy way to start examining our, our world. How are things appearing to me? Simply asking ourselves that question. How does this thing I'm craving appear to me? Can it exist in the way that it appears? How does this person I'm hating appear to me? Really analyze it. Can exist in the way that it appears. And then we begin the searching. We begin to analyze then what is actually there. So every single thing depends on its causes and conditions, depends on parts, depends on being conceived and labeled by mind. So in the uh, meditation outline, Venerable Children you know, just outlines, pick any object, and it's a great exercise daily. Pick any object and just examine what the causes and conditions necessary for it to come together, just like we did with the rice cake. Mentally take everything apart. What are the parts? What are the parts? When he was here one time, Jeffrey Hopkins suggested that we look at what is the object of designation, what is the designated object, and what is the basis of designation. Spend a lot of time on that. Meaning, what is the object I'm seeing? What are the parts that I'm projecting this on? What's the basis of designation? The basis of the name, rice cake, are all these little rice things pressed together, for example. Hmm. It's not what I thought it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and the conclusion we come to is that nothing exists on its own and that things are more fluid and dependent than you previously thought. And that opens the door. That opens the door to the to beginning to look at, at wisdom. So then the real trouble comes when we look at the person. I mean, we're grasping at things externally. It's not that they don't cause us trouble. But it's really um, the same thing when we grasp at the person. So the meditation is is very similar. One of the meditations, like one of the easiest things to to begin to recognize, they say, is to um, look at this thing about if the the person exists in the way that it appears, it either has to be the same as the aggregates or completely different. And that's what the meditation on the four point analysis is about, the one that's in our long run outline. The first thing we have to do is look at how the eye appears to me. In the same way we looked at how does the rice cake appear to me. And it's not just, you know, imagining the shape of our body, but in our mind, you know, how do I conceive of myself? How does that eye appear? What's the image I have? And we have different kinds. There's many different ones, really. But how does this 
Who do I think I am, anyway? <laughs> How does that I appear in my mind? And this we begin just by asking the question and looking what comes from what arises. Looking and seeing, looking and seeing. And then for the sake of the meditation, because you know it's so slippery sometimes, they say, think of a time when you were um, accused or criticized of something. And, you know, your emotion comes up big. How does myself appear to me then? <laughs> and we get a clear picture. There's definitely a strong me who is hurt <laughs> or who, you know, needs to be defended and protected. And, and then with that image in mind, we start to look. We, st- we go to this idea that, okay, if that I, that being, exists in the way that it appears. It either has to be right here in these parts, the same as this body and mind, or completely separate. There's no other way for it to exist. And this, they also say, we have to spend a lot of time just getting at that pervasion. So again, when Jeffrey Hopkins was here, he did an interesting demonstration of, of how to think about that, where he, he kind of did this stream of consciousness thing. Do you remember this? Where he, he just said, I don't know what was going through his mind, but he, was, he did like singular, plural, 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 singular. And what he said he was doing is he was running images of things in his mind. Just getting familiar with the idea that things either are the same or, or either are there's one or singular or plural. They're either singular or plural. One or many. And, he, and then there's no other alternative. And so in bringing images to mind and going singular, plural, singular, plural, he was, he was rehearsing this pervasion, this idea that things have to exist that way. So then, when we do the third step of the four-point analysis of looking, saying, okay, the, this I has to exist within these aggregates, within this body and mind. There is no other way because things are either this singular or plural. Then you start looking in the body and you ask her, am I my body? And you go through that whole list. Am I my mind? You go through that whole list. If there's no, that thing that seems to be in charge and the owner of both of these things doesn't, can't be found there, then it has to be somewhere else in the room. Well, that's ridiculous. And it's resting in the not finding, the not finding, that we do again, 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 that breaks the habit of conceiving myself as this solid thing. There are many, 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 many reasons, but this is the first one that they teach us, and it's really a powerful meditation and useful. It's not always powerful. Sometimes we just go, ha-hum. But doing it again, 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 you know, keeps familiarizing yourself with this. So finally, I'm running over a little bit. This all comes back to the perfection of wisdom. And this verse we say, we say it 
every fifth day. It's in the 37 practices. Since the five perfections without wisdom cannot bring perfect awakening, along with skillful means, cultivate the wisdom which does not conceive the three spheres as real. So then we're using, it's like we talk about it when we finish our our practice of uh, 35 Buddhas. We take this idea that things are dependent and we bring it to our understanding of everything we can remember. The three spheres then are, are called, sometimes called the circle of three, the agent, the object, and the action. The agent being the person who's acting, the object being, there's different ways the object actually gets uh, expressed, but there's many different circles of three there, and then the action itself. So, again, with giving, the agent would be the person who gives. The object might be the gift itself, the rice cake. The um, action is the action of giving. Or the object might be the person receiving the rice cake. could be either one of those things. But what are we seeing? That they're completely dependent. Those labels are completely dependent on each other. There's no gift without a giver and a receiver. There's no receiver without a giver and a gift. There's no action of giving without a giver, (laughs) a gift, and a receiver. So there's these interpenetrating, really, circles of three that all of these things are completely dependent on each other. They exist dependently in that way. And so if we take that mind that's looking at the interdependence of these three with our practice of generosity, with our practice of ethical conduct, with our practice of fortitude, with our practice of joyous effort, our practice of concentration. This is part of that wisdom force that's infusing our method practice, purifying our actions as we go. And it's growing our wisdom at the same time, so we have method and wisdom happening together. So finally, there was some uh, encouragement. Mr. Techchuk says, while learning about the far-reaching practices, we may think, these practices are so difficult, how can I ever do them? (laughs) Instead of expecting ourselves to be experts when we are beginners, let's accept our present abilities and at the same time, try to increase them in the future. The Buddha did not start off fully enlightened. This is an important thing to remember. <laughs> anyway, for me. The Buddha did not start off fully enlightened. And there was a time that he too found practicing the Bodhisattva deeds very challenging. However, because causes bring their corresponding results, By steady practice, we will be able to engage in and complete the bodhisattva's practices. 
Shanti Davis says, There is nothing whatsoever that is not made easier through acquaintance. Very famous quote. We need to remember this. <laughs> the more familiar we are, the easier things get. That's true of everything that we've ever learned. Everything. And then, Jeremy Pache and Austin Tinker Tech Truck, they all say it's study, 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 study. You know, that's the real key, is that we can't just expect this understanding, this wisdom, to come down like a lightning bolt and flash us on the head. It doesn't do that way. There may be, through the force of our past karma of having study, 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 there may be a moment when it dawns in a way that we get an insight, but it doesn't come from nowhere. And those causes are to then study and examine and think about and probe and talk about it. And It's not dependent on IQ. That's irrelevant. It doesn't depend on our education level. That is completely irrelevant too. It's um, being open-minded, applying the ability to learn clearly, uh, analyze clearly, be sincere in our spiritual aspirations. And, His Holiness adds, have created sufficient merit. So our understanding of wisdom is dependent on our merit. So may we um, practice, take the opportunities that we have. We have incredible opportunity to create merit. Really do it diligently and joyfully and and with the intention of coming up to this topic of wisdom and, and exploring it. Make friends with it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So let's become Buddhists so that we can um, get everybody out of cyclic existence as quickly as possible. Okay. This merit may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious body mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline but increase forevermore.